Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Mike Rothschild, the author of Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Well, thanks for having me back. I guess just to begin with, this might be the easiest question ever. Why did you decide to write a book about the Rothschilds? (laughs) Well, after spending the last decade writing about conspiracy theories, there's a name that comes up over and over and over, and it's not George Soros especially when you have that name and you were not related to those people. When I started writing about this stuff, I would get a lot of comments about, oh, you know, a Rothschild debunking conspiracy theories. I guess the matrix is broken, you know, stuff like that. But, I, you know, I knew I wasn't related to them. I'm not a, you know, fabulously wealthy person. I grew up in a split level house in the suburbs. That's, that's just not my world. But, you know, we all know how difficult it is to convince conspiracy theorists that something they think is real is not actually real. So I really wanted to dive into who this family is, what they've done, why they've got this reputation, and sort of how these myths have mutated over the years and decades and centuries to become really the bedrock of Western anti-Semitism right now. I guess just to start off with from first principles, could you tell us a bit about who the Rothschilds are and I guess why they first took on this role? The Rothschilds are one of the best known Jewish banking families in history. They they really do have a reputation that is almost mythical in their largesse, their ability to make money off of situations, their opulence. You know, that that myth is real, but it's also very easy to exploit. And it's been exploited for a long time. The family really rose out of the Frankfurt Jewish ghetto in the late 1700s, led by Mayor Amschel Rothschild, who was the the patriarch of the family and worked as a kind of a small time loan maker and money changer and dealing in coins and metals. And he worked his way up to become the court Jew for the crown prince of Hess. Now, I'm sure you know your audience is like, "What is that term? That sounds horrible." The court Jew was basically a court banker. And because there were a lot of prohibitions on who could lend money at interest, it in many cases, royalty or prime ministers had to go to the Jewish community to get the money they needed to build a new castle or a new palace or, you know, equip an army. So these roles were kind of an unofficial private banker to royalty. And that's where Mayor Amschel Rothschild really started to make his reputation. And he and his oldest son, Amschel, 
began hiding the money of the elector of Hesse, who was kind of the, the leader of this part of the Holy Roman Empire, when Napoleon's forces came. So they lent this money out. A lot of it was in gold. They lent it out to essentially fight the war against Napoleon. And over the course of about 20 years, they made a huge amount of money and very quickly became one of the wealthiest families in the world. One thing I didn't realize, Mike, until reading the book was how important the Battle of Waterloo was to the story of the Rothschilds. Can you briefly explain why that was such a key moment in the history of this family and the conspiracy theories surrounding them? Sure. And it's it's interesting. And this is one of those times when the story of what actually happened is not as involved or important to the family as the fake story that was passed around after that. So the Rothschilds did make a, a huge amount of money off the Napoleonic Wars, but they probably made very little off of the actual Battle of Waterloo. In fact, it actually financially imperiled them because they had bought a huge amount of gold to lend out and then the, the renewed war after Napoleon escaped exile ended very quickly. So the Rothschilds were suddenly left with all this gold and, you know, they, they didn't really have anywhere to, to lend it to and their, their financial liquidity was really at risk. But the version of the story that got passed around and is still being passed around is the version that came about 30 years later. And that's that Nathan Rothschild was at the Battle of Waterloo watched the the cannonballs flying and smelled the smoke and saw the the cries on on the faces of the dead men and realized that Napoleon was about to lose and that he would know first so as the story goes he gets on a fine horse rides across Europe in the middle of the night gets to the English channel bribes a terrified sailor to take him across the channel during a once in a century storm gets to the London stock exchange completely exhausted slumps against his favorite pillar and the other bankers are looking at his exhausted and defeated affect and thinking that Rothschild knows the outcome and that Napoleon has won and they start selling all their stocks so of course Nathan in the story knows that Napoleon has lost and he buys up all of the depressed stocks. The news of the battle of Napoleon losing the battle comes in. Those stocks skyrocket in value and Nathan Rothschild is now the richest man in the British Empire and basically runs the world. Now that's that's the story and absolutely not one thing of that happened except Napoleon losing. That did happen. But the rest of it is just a fabrication. And it's a fabrication of a French anti-Semitic pamphlet that accused not only Nathan Rothschild of using the Battle of Waterloo to make his fortune, but also of his brother James building a shoddy train line that caused a crash and the deaths of a bunch of Frenchmen. So it's it's very – there's two different stories in that pamphlet, but both are equally indicative of what we'd, we would see in the future for anti-Semitism. It was an original GameStop run. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> The Rothschilds were not the only family to have been around at the start of banking and to subsequently have a lot of money, but they are probably the one that has you know, remained in the popular anti-Semitic imagination since. What do you attribute to the longevity of the Rothschild conspiracy? I think part of it is that they kept their Judaism. A lot of these families either completely assimilated and converted or really downplayed their Judaism. They really tried to assimilate into kind of Western Gentile society and the Rothschilds never did that. The other thing is that they, the Rothschilds were just really visible. They had palaces all over Europe. They had massive art collections. They had fine resources. They had the greatest vineyards in France. They, they were very visible and very conspicuous in their wealth. And that legend, that myth really traveled across the, the ocean when you had the Jewish diaspora, when you had, you know, 
hundreds of thousands of Jews leaving Europe, leaving particularly Eastern Europe and emigrating to the United States. And they carried the name Rothschild with them. And they carried with them the aspiration that if they worked hard enough, they too one day could be a Rothschild or that a Rothschild might come to their humble house one day and, and grace them with their presence. So they were very much a model of aspiration for other Jews in the way that even a lot of other Jewish banking families weren't. Um, Mike, in the book, I also thought it was really interesting the ways in which you examined the Rothschilds and their situation in France in relation to, you know, the various industrial and other revolts that were going on throughout the course of the 19th century and the ways in which they were identified as being, you know, very bad people, but uh, by implication, Jews as a whole. I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how anti-Semitism informed political thinking on the left and the right in France and elsewhere during that period. Sure. And it's really important to remember that anti-Semitism was a, was a universal feeling. It wasn't just the left. It wasn't just the right. You had a lot of suspicion about wealth gathering, especially in the nascent socialist movement. A lot of the earliest major anti-Rothschild conspiracy theorists were socialists. They were naturalists. They were anarchists. These are people that we would normally associate with the, with the left, but they were suspicious of the amount of wealth that was concentrated in powerful Jewish families. Now on the right, or what we, you know, what we now call the right, you saw just outright anti-Semitism, outright hatred. But with, with a lot of French anti-Semites, it was really caught up in sort of the destruction of France's natural beauty. You had a lot of talk about sort of polluting French bloodlines. You know, obviously we would see that in the future. So there were a lot of, of very, what we would now call sort of progressive beliefs that were really caught up in anti-Semitism then. The Rothschilds are also associated with a, a range of other important historical figures. And I think later in the um, 19th century, early 20th century, perhaps, they're associated with figures like uh, Cecil Rhodes, I believe, who I guess would have a reputation um, in the 21st century as being a, um, a white supremacist and a colonialist and so on. Can you talk a bit about how the Rothschilds developed their businesses towards the end of um the 19th and early 20th centuries and what that meant for their being, I guess, implicated in a whole range of other activities, not just within Europe, but in Africa and Asia and, and across the world. Sure. The, the Rothschilds were very much involved with colonialism. They were buying up massive you know, copper mines and, and ruby mines and, and you know, building railroads all over the place. They, they really were getting in on a lot of this, this sort of expansionist scramble. And I think the, the most conspicuous place is their involvement with roads. It was uh, Natty Rothschild, who was, I think, the grandson or the great-grandson of Mayer, who got involved with Cecil Rhodes, and they founded the De Beers Mining Company together. They, the Rothschilds didn't have that kind of uh, colonialist bloodlust that you really saw in a lot of other political figures in England and in and in the Cape Colony and places like that. They were kind of appalled at the uh, ruthlessness where that Rhodes used to put down uprisings and, and the sort of the relationship fell apart. But for a while, they were really involved in this. They were involved in the expansion of diamond mines. They were very simpatico with Rhodes. And it, it's hard to reconcile that now because we, we think of these people as just nothing but irredeemable, nothing but colonialist and racist. And some of them certainly were, 
but it it was more complicated for the Rothschilds than that. And their and in their private correspondence, you know, they would talk about how they were really happy to be getting into this business, but they didn't approve of everything that Rhodes did. And and then they would eventually work with some of Rhodes's competitors. You know, for the Rothschilds, it it sounds like a cliche, but they really they they put expanding their businesses over a lot of other things, and I think probably to the detriment of a lot of people. It's also revealed in the book that there was like a just a voluminous literature on the Rothschilds, retelling all sorts of stories about their activities, real and alleged, but almost always from a fairly conspiratorial and anti-Semitic framework. And the other thing you point out is that the Rothschilds never, until very recently, uh, one member of the family did, but never responded to any of this nonsense. In hindsight, do you think that that was the, I mean, what advantages and disadvantages did that kind of seeming silence, you think, provide them in terms of countering not only the stories that were told about them, but I suppose anti-Semitism generally? Yeah, it was something I really had to puzzle out as I was writing the book was what what was my feeling about the the Rothschilds not responding to a lot of these things? Because when I first started writing, I reached out to a bunch of members of the family and I said, you know, there's no records of the family really responding to most of this. And I would love it if the modern generation talked about what do these myths mean? What did their, you know, parents and grandparents talk about with this stuff? None of them ever responded to me. Uh, or if they did, they would say something like, the book's a great idea, but we're not going to be involved. And there is a kind of silence that a lot of these old money families have had. And, and one of the things that I did realize, and I was talking to the family archivist in London, who told me that their general policy has been to just ignore all of this, not because it doesn't get to them, but because they can't prove a negative. You know, they can't give an interview and say, we don't own $500 trillion and all the central banks and, you know, we didn't secretly fund the Nazi party. That's crazy because most people don't think that. And the people who do think that are not going to be swayed by what a Rothschild says about the Rothschilds. So there, there's really very little way for them to win. And, and you referenced one of the family members who actually does respond to it, of course, was David de Rothschild, who does an interview with Infowars in 2007, yeah. talking about his climate change book. It's crazy. I mean, it's unbelievable that this happened. It's like, did, did no one know who he was? Or maybe they did know who he was. And they just you thought, oh, the publicity is going to be worth it. And it's one of the more uncomfortable hours of, of radio I've sat through. It's just, it's just two guys yelling at each other. So there's really not a lot that they could say. And I think we've seen this with other figures who are the subject of conspiracy theories. Their pushback does not dampen the enthusiasm that the conspiracy believers have for the conspiracy theories. It actually just looks more suspicious. You, you know, of course, of course, Soros would would deny he was in the SS. Of course, the Rothschilds would deny they secretly funded both sides of the First World War. So it gets to a point where you sort of can't win, and you understand why they just didn't say anything about it after a while. There's just there's nothing for them to gain from it, Mike. Obviously, you've had these pamphlets in France. How did we get from there to Telegram chats and, and the internet today? How, how have these theories traveled through time? They travel really well. And, you know, unfortunately, the nature of the human psyche for some people is always going to be blaming somebody else for your own failures and for your own problems and for things that you can't explain or that you don't like the explanation. And Jews have historically made 
societal scapegoats and the wealthier and more conspicuous and more powerful the, the Jewish person is, the better scapegoat they make. So once the Rothschilds really started to become the universal cause of all of the problems of the world, and once the makers of this, as we would call it now, content, found that they could make a lot of money doing it, you just saw it recycled over and over. One of the things that really astounded me writing this was how popular some of this stuff was. This initial pamphlet about the Rothschilds sold something like 60,000 copies. It was reprinted a dozen times. One of these these French books, Jewish France from 1890, this just hideously anti-Semitic book, sold half a million copies. It was the most printed book in France in 1890. These books sell millions of copies. Now we see the podcasts, the live streams, the merchandise stores run by the people who put this stuff out. It makes a lot of money. And it also happens to tap into something that a lot of these people really believe. So it's, you know, it doesn't take much to jump from one technological medium to another when you've got storytellers who are really good at it. The book is called Jewish Space Lasers. Where does that come from? Sure. And and this is one of those things where I, I gave it this title because I wanted it to be attention getting. You know, I, I didn't want it to be sort of another like slow black and white trawl through Jewish misery. I wanted it to be something very modern and vital. And when you think about weird anti-Semitism, Marjorie Taylor Greene and this idea of a uh, Jewish directed uh, laser beam starting forest fires is one of the things you think of. So this was a real conspiracy theory. We've been seeing it now with some of the wildfires we've been having in 2023 that the deep state or the cabal or whoever it is has a satellite that they use to fire off lasers, to start forest fires, to push their climate change scam or clear land to build their their big houses, you know, we saw this in, in Maui, you know, the idea that Oprah had a laser and was like clearing land so she could buy up real estate. I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous. But the Rothschilds have been connected to this stuff. And of course, this Facebook post comes out from then private citizen Marjorie Taylor Greene in 2018, talking about a plan by PG&E, who has a board member who was a vice president at Rothschild, and they're working with a solar energy startup and then Governor Jerry Brown and Dianne Feinstein's husband to clear land so they can build their $77 billion high-speed rail system. It, now, it's totally incomprehensible and massively overcomplicated, but it it was part of the zeitgeist of this idea that these forest fires are being started by lasers. Now, this post disappears for a couple of years. Nobody would have ever thought of it or remembered it, except, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene gets elected to Congress. And a few weeks after she's sworn in, this post resurfaces. Now, the post never uses the term Jewish space lasers. It never even uses the word Jewish. But it's talking about the Rothschilds. And everybody kind of knows, like, oh, the Rothschilds, a big fire. Isn't that interesting? And it really kind of takes off as its own meme almost right away. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and available on the Community Radio Plus app. We're currently talking to Mike Rothschild about his book, Jewish Space Lasers. Part of Marjorie Taylor Greene's defense of her solar space generators posts was that she didn't even know until recently that the Rothschilds were Jewish. What do you make of the fact that you know some people spreading this these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories don't actually know that they're anti-Semitic. Well, that's one of the big problems is that these, these ideas have become so internalized, particularly in fringe culture, 
which of course somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene knows intimately, but also in just sort of everyday life, the idea that Jews are better with money or have innate financial wisdom or are you know genetically cheap and don't don't tip well, things like that. You know, a lot of that stuff is just kind of jokey, but it has a cumulative effect, and it it, it casts the the Jewish community as outsiders, as clannish, as keeping to themselves. Then you throw in all these conspiracy theories and all of this literature. And so these these things just get repeated over and over and over. And I've I've talked to people who genuinely think that the Rothschilds drink baby blood or genuinely think that the Rothschilds own all of the central banks. These aren't even necessarily anti-Semitic people. Many of them aren't. They, they just don't know why this isn't true. They've heard it a bunch and they think, well, it could be true. Why not? Because you don't know any better. I'm like, there's something kind of, I was going to say delightful, but maybe that's not the appropriate term, at least thrilling about these tales because on the face of it, they are so uh, both entertaining and preposterous. But as you've mentioned, there's a, a nasty element, which I guess, you know, has at various points in history become genocidal. And I know you don't want to, you know, you didn't write the book in order to um, simply uh, remind the world about the horrors associated with anti-Semitism, but what role do you think the book can play in, I guess, exposing the absurdities of the tales? And do you think, you know, providing a rational account of the family's history, development of industrial capitalism and so on, do you have confidence that that kind of straightforward account, even if it's on an entertaining manner, can actually reach the people who are so susceptible to these kind of ridiculous ideas and, and help to perpetuate them without necessarily understanding the, the kind of, you know, where those sorts of ideas lead? Well, it's a question I ask myself a lot. And it was something I was asking myself a lot writing the QAnon book, you know, who who is this for? And, you know, of course, my answer is somebody wants to sell books is it's for everybody. But I know that there are a lot of hardcore anti-Semites who are going to look at this and think, oh, a Rothschild debunking Rothschild myths, you know, how stupid do they think I am? I don't know that I'm trying to reach that person. The person, though, that I do want to reach is that person who is genuinely telling me, oh, the Rothschilds don't own all the central banks? Because that's a person who probably can be reached and who can probably read a book like this that you know doesn't require a lot of foreknowledge and I think is a pretty quick read, is not going to sort of pummel you over the head with details, and understand what these words mean what it means when somebody says globalist, when somebody mentions the Rothschilds in terms of wealth or power, or Soros, or London financiers, or international bankers, to understand that those terms are not just catch catchphrases. They have real meaning, and they have a, a history of doing harm to people, not necessarily the people at the very top of Jewish society, but, you know, the people in the middle and the people at the bottom, you know, we've seen Jewish communities hounded, you know, Jews expelled in, in entire nations because of these rumors and these myths and these conspiracy theories. And, you know, I certainly don't have any hope of putting all of that to rest. But if people can read this book and understand that when somebody uses a phrase like Jew them down, that's not just a harmless joke. That gets people hurt and it has real meaning to it. And maybe... Knowing this, you can spot it in the wild, you can spot it in the people that you care about, and maybe maybe we can change a few minds that way, just by sort of making people understand where this stuff comes from and the real harm that it does. Mike, 
there is some hope. The CEO of X recently tweeted about how X opposes anti-Semitism in all its forms, that anti-Semitism is evil, and X will always work to fight it in our platform. What have you made of X's recent attempts to fight anti-Semitism? Somebody ought to tell the owner of X that his CEO is claiming that they're going to do whatever they can to fight anti-Semitism because Elon Musk has done a lot of damage, you know, and, and I'm, look, I'm a hypocrite. I still have a Twitter account, but I understand what he's doing. And I understand that he is using a very well-worn and very dangerous cliche, which is that, you know, a Jewish advocacy group, aka the Jews, are responsible for my business failures. There is not that much different in Elon Musk claiming the ADL has cut $20 billion of value off his company than Nazi politicians saying that it was a, a Jewish bank that first failed that brought the world's economy down in 1931. It's not that different. And I, I think we do ourselves a real disservice by dismissing this as, oh, he's just being edgy or he just doesn't know any better. I, I don't think you get to be the richest man in the world by being stupid. And I think he knows what this stuff means. I think he understands it. I don't know if he's anti-Semitic or not. I, 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 you know, I don't know him at all, and I couldn't tell you that. But he is certainly exploiting tropes that anti-Semitic people believe. Mike, another question that occurred to me in reading about discussion of the Rothschilds on the internet and the World Wide Web is a lot of it is kind of, I guess, memeified. Essentially, this is piecemeal information. It's not a generally speaking, it's not. A book length account, or those those two are available. Do you think the terrain in which these sorts of stories are discussed has changed a great deal in the last few decades? And what impact, I guess, more generally, do you think the internet has had on the capacity of ideas about the Rothschilds and uh, anti-Semitism generally, the ways in which those things have been expressed, and by implication, how they're responded to? Yeah, and I think what the internet has done. It, it has not made people, I think, more anti-Semitic. I mean, the ridiculous ideas about the Rothschilds now are pretty much the same as the ridiculous ideas about the Rothschilds a century ago. They've got some gigantic amount of money. They own the Federal Reserve. You know, Hitler is secretly a Rothschild. They do satanic rituals, whatever, whatever. It's just the speed and the accessibility that has really changed and, and massively increased. You can now come up with a Rothschild pamphlet or an anti-Rothschild meme or podcast, and you don't need to do anything to distribute it except put it out there. And if you make enough work and if you're prolific and if you say something that people respond to, you can become an influencer in this community very quickly. There is no barrier to entry anymore. You know, you don't need to know where the weird bookstore is. You don't need to go to the gun show to get the new anti-Clinton tape anymore. It's just everywhere. And you have a lot of really prominent and powerful people endorsing this stuff. Maybe it's not specifically about the Rothschilds, but it's about Jewish wealth and Jewish power. And that always comes back to the Rothschilds. So what has changed is the accessibility, the speed, and there's no guardrails anymore. There's just no way to stop this stuff once it starts to get out there. And that is a, that's a very scary world to live in. I guess just finally, Mike, the Rothschilds have this long and distinguished and notorious history as being at the center of these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. But do you think that someone like Uncle George Soros could take their place in future or are there other contenders waiting in line? Well, there's a reason why the U.S.'s envoy combating anti-Semitism, Deborah Lipstadt, called Soros the Rothschilds of the 21st century. 
he really has taken the crown as sort of the string puller of the string pullers. Although there are people who think that he's just a, a, a puppet of the Rothschilds. You know, there was that Ben Garrison cartoon from a few years ago that shows Soros being the puppet master to two of Trump's generals and the Rothschilds are Soros's puppet master. You know, there, there is a, there is sort of an overlap between all of these things. And of course, one of the things I, you know, finish up the book with is the idea that Soros really has usurped this role for a lot of people, but he's in his early nineties. He's not going to be around forever. And this culture, the the sort of fringe conspiracy world is always going to need someone at the very top of this pyramid. And I do a little bit of speculating about who I think might take that position. And I, I'm thinking more and more that it's going to be Alex Soros, is George's younger son, maybe his youngest son, who is now running the Open Society Foundations. And that is, of course, the dartboard for all of the theories about funding Antifa and funding revolutions in Ukraine and paying protesters and praying Colin Kaepernick to kneel, all that stuff comes to the Open Society Foundations. And Alex is running those and he's very visible and he's young and he was kind of a playboy before he got serious about work. So I think there is a really good chance that Alex Soros is going to be the next iteration of this. We've already seen Alex Jones really go after him on his show. So I, I really think that once George is no longer with us, I think we're really going to be seeing a repurposing of a lot of this for Alex. And of course, you know, you know, you can use the same memes, you know, <laughs> just, you know, just change George to Alex and there you go. Well, Mike, we'll have to leave it there. The book is Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. It is out on September 19. And I have to say, it does have one of the all-time great covers. Yeah, I know. I love it. Where can people find you online, Mike? I'm still on Twitter, still fighting the good fight, at RothschildMD. And you can get the book in hardcover. You can get it in ebook. There's an audio book. You can get it at your local bookshop. You can get it at bookshop.org. There's also that big website that sells books. I think it's something with an A. You can go there too if you want to. Uh, yeah, you can get it basically everywhere. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Andy, that's our time. Just a reminder, tomorrow night at Cafe Gummo, there is a benefit gig for the White Rose Society and the Black People's Union. So get along to Cafe Gummo. We'll catch you next week. See you then. Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to 3CR when you're on it. Until now, the Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter.